0: weather right everybody excited pulled it out it's uh i don't know if it shrunk during storage (laughs) or there's something with my body composition that has changed over the summer but here we are i'm stretching it out all right we are back in matthew everyone so if you could turn your bibles to matthew uh we're we're focusing this morning on matthew chapter 14 verses 1 through 12. When you open your Bible this morning, just jump back to 13, verse 53. And we're going to read from there. Matthew 13, 53 through 14, 12. Let's read this together. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom? In these mighty works. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household and he did not and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief at the time Herod the tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus he said to his servants this is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead that is why these miracles i'm sorry that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him for Herod had seized John And bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, took the body, and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. The word of the Lord, amen? Pray with me. God, we ask this morning that you would do what only you can do through your word. As it is all profitable to us. Illuminate it to our hearts. Speak to us. Draw us closer to you. Help us to understand the gospel more. Your word to us. We open our hearts to it this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. So here we are back in Matthew, and we are on the heels of Jesus doing mighty works and giving parables and then coming to his hometown. And those in his hometown recognizing him And his mother Mary and his sisters and his brothers not appreciating who he is. And then we go into this story of the ghastly execution of the Lord's prophet. Really on a whim. Almost dies because of a dancing girl. And Herod Antipas, uh, in his sin... And in his pride, and on a whim at a party, takes the life of this great man, this prophet of the Lord. You know, this is the second time that in the dynasty of the Herod's uh, violence, we've uh, heard about them in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, we hear of Herod the Great, Antipas' father, and the desire to kill Jesus, if you remember the Christmas story really, in the beginning of Matthew and his murder of, of children in an effort to kill Jesus. And now we kind of interact this dynasty of the Herods again, which if you were to try to really track the Herods and who they are and which one was which and where they ruled, I promise it's a losing battle. But they, the Herod the Great, as we see in Matthew 2, he has sons, and, and these sons uh, get apportioned a part of Herod the Great's kingdom, and Herod uh, Antipas is called Herod the Tetrarch because he Tetrarch really means like kind of a fourth. He's ruling over a fourth of the kingdom. He actually is ruling over a third, but this this title Tetrarch really means that he is a, kind of a sub king. He is a partial king. He's not even really a king. He really gives himself the title king, or others maybe attribute it to him uh, unlawfully, but he. He calls himself, treats himself like a king. He rules over basically a portion of what used to be his dad's kingdom. So here we see Herod the Tetrarch. And he's having a party. And he's got his guests there. Jesus had just taught the multitude several parables about the kingdom of heaven. And we're told he went back to his own neighborhood. And when he got there, there's a buzz about Jesus. Jesus. Right? The the word is spreading and people are hearing about his miracles. People are hearing about his mighty works. And when he gets home, we we see that people are like, Who is this? Is this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's kid? We know his mom. We know his sisters. We know his brothers. Where did he get all this wisdom and all this power? You know, and then Jesus, on the heels of this reaction in his hometown, he, he utters those famous words a prophet is never without honor except in his own home. You know, really, we we see that old adage, right, that familiarity breeds contempt. You know, sometimes when greatness is right in front of us and we're so familiar with it, we just don't see it. It doesn't appear to us. You know, what's interesting about Jesus and that reality is that James, his brother, the namesake of the book of the Bible, James, the leader of the church, didn't become a Christian until after the resurrection of Christ, and he was a witness to it. And can you imagine, it's my brother. Familiarity breeds contempt. Prophets, not without honor, except in his own home. You kind of see the people, oh, we know him, right? That's the carpenter's son. That's Joseph's son. That's Mary's son. We know his brothers. We know it's this. Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get these, this incredible ability to do these things? We know him. So he didn't do many great works in their, in their midst. But Herod had heard of the buzz. And so what we see in the beginning of chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we see that Herod hears of Jesus. He hears of these miracles. He hears of these great works. And he thinks. In some strange, bizarre, uh, I would say we, we can glean from this passage and from Mark, uh, Mark's version of the story a guilt ridden conscience. He thinks to himself, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? And then the rest of the passage, almost like a prequel, goes back to describe how Herod executed John the Baptist. So in the first verse of chapter 14, we see John the Baptist is already dead and Herod hears the buzz of Jesus and all of his great works and his miracles and he thinks to himself, wait a minute, did John the Baptist raise from the dead? Is this him back uh, doing these miracles? Because his conscience of what he had done, his guilt-ridden and his bizarre superstition interacted in a way that he started thinking, wait a minute, hold Hold the horses. Like, is something going on here? Is John the Baptist back? Herod's concerned. Who is this Jesus? And then the passage goes on to explain to us what happened. What happened to John the Baptist? So now we move to John the Baptist's execution. We see John in his life. The one who would make the way. John the Baptist, the prophet of the Lord, who really is a prophet who restored the voice of prophecy after 400 years of silence. We have the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist really in line with the Old Testament prophets is the first voice of prophecy that we hear preparing the way of the Lord, speaking of the kingdom, repent, for the kingdom of of God is at hand and calling for those, those to repent because he's making the way for Jesus. And so for the first time in 400 years, we see a prophet speaking the word of God after 400 years of silence Herod hears of Jesus, thinks maybe this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's terrified when he hears Jesus and his miracles and thinks it must be John. And Matthew goes back to describe really this horrible story of John's death. John had been speaking out. He was doing the prophet thing. He prophetically spoke truth to power. He had been speaking out against Antipas and Herodias. What do we learn from the passage? That Herod Antipas had left his wife, the wife who was the daughter of another king, for his brother's wife. He saw what pleased him, he wanted it, and he went after her, and he took His brother's wife and John the Baptist in line of the prophets of old, he spoke out. He spoke out publicly. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You are living in such a way that is inconsistent with the law of God. You, civil authority, who is supposed to to live uh, under God and over the people in a righteous and just way. You who have been given your authority, even as a civil power, by the God of of the universe. God gave you your authority. You're supposed to rule in a just way. You've been given the power of the sword, but you're supposed to use that uh, to execute justice and to live according to the law of God. I'm going to call you out on it. You need to repent. You're living in adultery with your brother's wife. What are you doing? And John the Baptist spoke out. And he spoke out forcefully. He spoke out truthfully to the face of power, uh, really being faithful to God at the expense of his own freedom and then life. See, John the Baptist, this prophetic voice, an example of what it means to speak truth to power. There were two men very upset about this adultery and about this marriage. King Artis, who was the father of Herod's wife, who he was supposed to be with, and who he left for Herodias and John the Baptist. This king had waged war against Herod and handed him a pretty decisive blow against his power. So he was taking a shot for what he was doing to fulfill his own pleasures and sinful desires. And now here's John the Baptist this prophet publicly speaking out against him. John the Baptist came furious about his sin. He spoke out publicly that Herod was breaking the law of God in his immorality. You know, John the Baptist really is standing in line with with so many other of the Old Testament prophets that did this. This is really how God had called prophets to function, is it not? We see Moses, who goes to Pharaoh. Remember, let my people go. And he spoke truth to ultimate power on the earth under, obviously, the sovereignty of God. Moses spoke forcefully and clearly to Pharaoh. Elijah, pursued by the king. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah in the king's palace, speaking the word of the Lord. Daniel, remember, before Nebuchadnezzar, speaking truth to power. I always remember Nathan, who spoke truth to David. When he had committed adultery against Bathsheba, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he went to David and gave him the story of the man with the sheep, and that this one man had one sheep that he had cared for and loved, and the man with many sheep, the king with many sheep, left his many sheep and took the man's one sheep and killed it for for his own meal. And David rose from the throne. He said, "Who is this guy? I'm going to kill him." And Nathaniel or Nathan pointed the finger right in his face and said, "It's you. You're that man." prophets that spoke truth to power. This is what John the Baptist is doing. You know, it's interesting. Honestly, guys, as we read this passage together and we reflect on our own sin and our own propensity and need for Christ, as we read this narrative of a historical moment, there's not much allegory to draw from this. This is straight history. But we see that we live in a place where the separation of our faith and what happens from civil authorities becomes greater and greater and greater, does it not? And there's almost a, a view culturally that your faith should be private. Your faith should be only in your home, only in your heart, we, only in our churches. We just pray, we sing our hymns. But other than that, when it comes to what's happening around the world, be quiet, keep your mouth shut, and keep your, your religion in your church and in your home. But what we recognize from scripture is that God gives authority to civil powers and they're under him. And he calls his church, he calls his people to live under his sovereignty as well and to live in such a way that we proclaim the truth of who God is and what he's called us to, right? Our faith is meant to be lived in such a way that we proclaim the glory of Jesus and who he is and do that honestly at the expense often of our own safety maybe, of our own advancement in the workplace potentially because we're called to something greater because we're called to a truth that's beyond. We see in Romans 13 that civil authorities are given their power from God. Civil authorities are under the Supreme Lord as he's ordained civil government to be under him and over the people. Both the church and the state are instituted by God to serve under the authority of God. And you know what? Sometimes when there is something so horrific coming from that authority, we may need to speak clearly in love and grace, but truthfully. The church cries out. And sometimes we're told just to stay in our churches and sing our hymns and preach our sermons and stay out of the marketplace and keep quiet. But I think we see here that we're not just called to do that. You know, the psalmist said that the kings of the earth rage against God and declare their independence. And I love this. He who sits in the heavens laughs, he will hold them in derision. It's one thing to declare your independence from God, it's another thing entirely to gain independence from God. And the reality is, he is sovereign over it all, is he not? He is sovereign over every ruler. There is no civil authority that isn't there because God put them there. And he's in charge. That's good news. There is no ruler free from the sovereignty of the almighty God. And while the church should not be the state, we don't believe that. I'm not talking about a theocracy it is a prophetic voice to the state and what God's ordained it to be and to do. You know, Jesus said that we're salt and light. Are we not? We are salt and light, and Christians in the world who have received Christ need to be salt and light. Salt has a couple of different attributes to it that are essential for us as believers living in the world. It enhances flavor, and it preserves And the church is to be that prophetic voice that brings out the best in people because of the Word of God and who we are and how He's called us to live in response to the gospel as we worship Him with our lives. We are to bring out the best. And we're also to preserve, to keep from the constant degradation of sin, not only in our own lives as we're sanctified, but, but societally. The church is salt and light. We're to show the way in the darkness. You know, what's interesting, too, is we see John speaking truth at the expense of his freedom and then his life. This prophetic voice that, that insists on being salt, that insists on preserving, that insists on being light and pointing out, Hey, King Herod, you are in sin. King Herod, you should not have taken your brother's wife. You are, you are not living according to the law of God. You know, speaking truth to power is difficult. It's difficult. Most fold. In that instance, I was reading uh, not too long ago. Actually, it was probably quite a while ago, but then I just refreshed it as I was preparing for this. But um, Chuck Colson, who worked for Richard Nixon, speaks about this. He says, he, in one of his books, he talks about how he often remembered people coming to see Nixon, and he would watch them sitting in, their, uh, in the outer room, in the waiting room before they went in the Oval Office, and he would watch them rehearsing their demands right sitting in the chair and angrily rehearsing their demands and what they were going to request of the president and what they were going to demand of him and he would watch that rehearsal take place over and over and over again as people or lobbyists or folks that wanting something to the president would come to the office and then he would watch them stand up and then walk into the oval office in the trappings of power in the reality of where they are and who they're sitting in front of immediately changed their demeanor right And their tone changed, and their request changed. And the conversation was a lot different than what they had rehearsed. Not John the Baptist here. There is no change in his demeanor and tone given the power of Herod. He speaks truth. Why do we remain silent? It's, It's dangerous. I mean, John the Baptist is killed for calling the king to repentance. So here we go back to this narrative. Here's Herod, he's throwing a birthday party, all the dignitaries have arrived, and honestly you see that Herod's got him in jail, so he's already taken away his freedom, hey, you're getting a little bit too loud about my sin, and he grabs him and he throws him in prison. And here he's having this party, and you kind of see from the narratives in scripture and from the passage we're reading this morning that Herodias kind of is a little bit orchestrating of the events that are to take place. There's an idea that you know, she knows he would be pleased by probably Salome, her daughter, dancing uh, before the, the dignitaries there. So her daughter goes and dances. There's, there's some implication here that it's potentially erotic, but it's, it's a dance that uh, she's a, a, a dancer, and she dances and Herod is pleased. And in his whim and in his pleasure, he, in, in being a big shot and in his pride, he says, listen, and we see in Mark, he says, you can have up to half of my kingdom. Anything you request, you can have. Just name it and you can have it. And she goes to her mother. And says, what do we want? <laughs> right? She whispers to mom, what do we want? And here's mom, Herodias, embarrassed publicly, shamed by John the Baptist. He has called out publicly the reality that she's left her husband, he has left her wife, and they are living in this new relationship that's unlawful. He's called them to repent, he's publicly embarrassed them, and she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. How ghastly. Honestly, how disgusting. Go kill this man. Don't just kill him. I want you to cut his head off and put it on a platter and then bring it to me. I want to see it. Let's talk about the realities of sin gone wild. Here we see this aspect of Herod where he, you know, kind of pretends maybe a little bit to have some concern for the law of God. Right? He makes this oath. He says publicly, he, he gives an oath that I am going to give you whatever you want all the way up till half of my kingdom. And then she asked for this illegal, immoral, disgusting murder of a of a godly man who's innocent. And if he knew anything about oaths in the law of the Lord, that he would not have to keep and actually should not keep an illegal oath of this type of disgust and immorality. He should have, under the law of God, gone back on it. But we see from the scriptures, Well, you know, I gotta keep my oath. All of a sudden, he's concerned, minimally, about the law of God and you see from his relationship in in the book of Mark and, and a little bit here in Matthew uh, with John the Baptist that he has some uh, peripheral respect for him he likes to talk to him he likes to hear from him he understands that John is is uh, at least according to the people a prophet from God and and has interesting or is interested in conversing with John the Baptist so here we see Herod is this religious figure on the periphery of of Jewish religion who kind of made Maybe mixed in with his pagan beliefs believes in the law of god still a little bit as it pertains to him or as it pleases him in the moment is that not the case of so many we know i was brought up religious kind of know about these ideas these thoughts mixed in with whatever else I need to please me and to do what I want. And then we see the degradation of sin and where it leads. The sinfulness of Herod, the sinfulness of his pride. How about the sinfulness of his needing to really not concerned about the oath, but needing to save face? among the dignitaries and the people he was trying to impress, right? Here he is trying to be a big shot, the dancing girl that everybody loves and everybody's excited to watch. He looks over and says, ah, oh, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. Just being a big shot out of the excitement of everyone watching this, he gives her this promise. And now she asks for this? And we see he's concerned. Uh, I don't know, the people of God really think this, this guy's a prophet. This could cause me trouble, This could be a problem for me if I just kill this innocent man in such a ghastly way or kill him at all. But I'm not quite as concerned about that as I am saving face and pressing my guests and making good on this stupid promise I made in front of a dancing girl and all my friends at this party. We see Herod in his sin. His concern for his own ability to impress, to show his authority, and to be the big shot overrides his concern for John, the prophet, and concern over the people being upset that John's killed. And on this disgusting whim, he tells someone to go do it, off of his head. And they go to the prison and they behead John. His pride's on the line. He caved. And his servants come back with the head on the plate. And they give it to this young girl who brings it to her mom. How disgusting. The final course of the banquet is the head of a prophet. You know, it's interesting. Herod has religion. He has a strange sense of justice, perhaps even some knowledge of God's law. But he considered himself above it. Married, partied, divorced, makes promises, ruled as he pleased, knew some biblical concepts, but lived as if he pleased, as he pleased, in, in any way that he pleased. John's disciples come and took away what was left of him, gave him a proper burial. Prophets without honor except in his own home. Then they go to Jesus and they inform of what, what had happened. You know, Israel's rejection of the prophets was well known from the scriptures. Second Chronicles 36, 16, Daniel 9, 6, 10. And for Matthew, the rejection of the prophets culminates in, ultimately... The rejection of John, but then, ultimately, the rejection of Jesus. There really is a foreshadowing of John, and really an inseparable thing between John and Jesus. We see people rising up in in fear and in uh, disdain as Jesus' popularity grows, You know, Herod's erroneous view of the source of Jesus' power, it's bizarre. But Jesus and John are inseparably linked. They're linked by their message and their destiny. They both are prophets proclaiming repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. They both attract crowds and called disciples. They both drew crowds and unjustified opposition from Jewish leaders. And we see in this passage, it begins... With Herod's erroneous view of Jesus, it begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. Herod hears of him, and in the end, the report of John's death goes to him. And after this, we see Jesus goes to another place, but not out of fear, but because it's not his time yet. And so when he hears of John the Baptist's murder, he leaves that place. Folks, Jesus dies much like John months later. But here's what we know this morning. Jesus' death is different than John in ways that give us hope, amen? Jesus rises again. John only died as a man. Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus died as a representation of all of us because he was fully God and he was fully man. You see, John was just preparing the way for Jesus, but Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And in the same way they rejected the prophet John and took his life, much like they rejected the prophets of old, they reject Jesus. But when they take Jesus's life, it is a representation for all of us. He is our substitution. And Jesus, unlike John, rises again. Amen? Amen? he defeats sin, he defeats death, and he rises again on our behalf for us, something none of us could do, John couldn't do, only Jesus could do. When Jesus speaks truth to power, when Jesus proclaims the need for repentance and that the kingdom of God is at hand, they take his life too, but he, they don't take his life, he gives it, amen? And he gives it for us. As a propitiation, as a wrath, absorbing substitute for us he pays for our sin in his death and in his resurrection john was great and we pause as matthew did in in this book and you reflect on the death of a great man but although john was great jesus deserves our trust, amen? Jesus is who you can trust your life with, that you can lay your life upon because his death and then his resurrection prove his death is different. Listen, death must be dealt with and we all in our lives, I'm sure to some degree, have dealt with it. As Jesus now had, in this passage and in this narrative, had to deal with the death of John, his friend and his cousin. But here's, we, here's what we today, because of Jesus, realize about death. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? We see the death of a great man, a prophet of the Lord, at the whim of a leader, a civil leader with power because a girl danced in front of him and he thought he'd be a big shot. But here's what we recognize. God sits on his throne and he is in control. He was in control of John the Baptist's life from beginning to end. And he was writing the narrative and the story of the reality of Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection for us. Amen. So we learn more the story of Christ as we walk through Matthew. We see that this is an important piece of the narrative as we look at Jesus and his ministry, as we know he is heading to the cross, the most important event, the most pivotal event in the history of the planet. And this morning, we have an opportunity to do something we do now a couple times a month. That's to take a moment and reflect on the reality and the importance of what Jesus has done and who he is and come to his table. So we're gonna do that this morning. At this time, as the people of God, we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's a sacred meal. We remember the finished work of Christ and the very basis of our salvation. You know, this meal is for those who know Jesus, who trust Jesus, who's worthy of our trust, have been baptized into his church. And if we're here today and and you, you know him and you trust him, let's take this moment together and reflect on the reality of what his death and what his resurrection means for us. If you don't know him today and you haven't come to Christ and been baptized into his church, do the same thing. Take this moment. Although don't come to the table, take this moment to reflect on that reality. Take this moment to consider who Jesus is, what he's done in relationship to your life. If you have any questions or need to talk to someone, please grab one of us. We would love to speak with you. As you abstain from this meal, consider, reflect on who Jesus is. Answer that question for yourself. Who is Jesus to me, and what has he done? Know that we're always here to answer any questions you have and help you know Jesus as your Savior. At this point, I'm going to have the ushers come forward.